I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. And a very warm welcome. This is the Motormouth Podcast with myself, Harry Benjamin, and Tim Sylvie, where in each show we sit down with a figure from the world of motorsport and dive into how exactly they ended up where they are now. F1 champions, team principals, Formula E and touring car stars. If there's anyone with a story to tell, they'll usually tell it right here. Motormouth is an app and website where you can catch up with all the latest F1 gossip at motormouth.club and view live timings across a race weekend with our app. We're also proud to be partnered with the Brain Tumor Charity, helping to raise awareness and help find a cure through events like our annual karting race, where you can go head-to-head against professional drivers, all to raise vital funds. For more info, check out motormouthkartrace.com. This podcast is brought to you by F1 Experiences, the official experience, hospitality and travel program of Formula One. F1 Experiences is the closest you can get to the pinnacle of motorsport. And let's face it, any chance to get close to Formula One, we're all over it. Enjoy the very best race tickets and track hospitality, first class hotels and unprecedented access you simply cannot get anywhere else. For more information on how you can book your F1 experience, visit f1experiences.com where you can also save 5% on your very own F1 Experiences package by using the code MM11F1E when checking out online. So, what are you waiting for? Experience the 2022 F1 season firsthand with exclusive access courtesy of F1 Experiences. Get booking today at F1Experiences.com. Hello, Tim Sylvie here. Now, today's guest lives in Rygate. And did you know, Harry, that writer and comedian Spike Milligan lived in Orchard Way in Rygate? Superstar DJ Norman Cook was raised in Rygate and attended the local grammar. Newton Faulkner, the English singer-songwriter who was famous for penning the, word, penning, penning the words to SpongeBob SquarePants. He's also from Rygate. England cricket legend Phil Tufnell and adventurer and TV presenter Ray Mears were all Rygate residents. 
But in the absence of any amazing Rygate-related questions, Harry, I'm going to test you on something our guest today knows only too well, the Indy 500. Now, I'm expecting you to get this correct. Okay. Because of your encyclopedic motorsport brain. Are you ready for this? Supposedly, okay. So, British drivers have taken eight victories at the Indy 500. Who won most recently? As in, what, British driver? Which British driver won most recently? Yeah. We'll have to say that would probably be... Uh, which British driver won most recently? You're going to kick yourself. Um, oh, hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on. Let me just think about this for a minute. Who's an obvious... Who went to... Amer- there isn't a British... Oh. Give up? I don't know. My mind's gone blank. I give up. I give up. Go on, Max. Dario Franchitti. Dario Franchitti. Oh, so, so that he, makes sense. So he's won it 2007, 2010, 2012. Can you name the others? Uh, no. So you've got Jim Clark, 1965. Yeah. Graham Hill, 1966. Dan Weldon, of course. Oh, Dan, of course. 2005, 2011. And Dario Resta um, in 1916. So eight, eight victories across one, two, three, four, five drivers. Wow. So I, well, I have to apologize. My, my indie card knowledge isn't as up to scratch, clearly, as it needs to be. Clearly. So that needs work. Yeah, poor effort. Um, shall I introduce today's guest? I think so. So today, I'm delighted to say we're joined by Max Chilton. Max is a man of many talents. He's climbed his way from karting into single-seaters through F3, what was GP2, and into Formula 1. He took his talents stateside to join the IndyCar grid with British racing giants Carlin before moving over to Chip Ganassi Racing, where he came oh so close to winning the big one, the Indy 500. More on that later. He still has his foot on the gas in the racing world, but is now a budding businessman to boot. We're here to learn about his career, thoughts, views, and opinions. Max Chilton, a very overdue welcome to the Motormouth Podcast. How are you doing? I'm very good, and it's an, it's an honour to be here. I'm fairly new to podcasts. I'm a bit of an old man, but I did uh, I did one recently, and it, I, I couldn't believe the amount of uh, you know listeners and people commenting on it. So I'm now uh, I'm now a lover of podcasts, and it's a pleasure to be on the, the Motormouth podcast. Was that was that yeah, with, was, was that with Sam at Seen Through Glass? It was, and I couldn't believe the amount of activity from after it went live. It's it's unbelievable because obviously you put it on YouTube, and then obviously mm. you get it on any of the podcast channels, but. It was just amazing. I've been on Question of Sport, I think, three times now. And that's BBC One primetime, and you hardly get anything yeah. back from it. With that, it was just constant following and commenting. And it was all positive as well, which is, is makes all worth it. Yeah, well, we live in the world of, of podcasts. Now, I was thinking that before we did, before we uh, came on. I was like, I, I, I'm not sure I've seen Max appear on, on many podcasts before. So uh, well, we're honoured to be amongst your your first uh, forays into it. And I did have a mild panic there when Tim asked me that question about Indy Car winners because <laughs> obviously I remember you leading the Indy 500 oh. very famously. I think, oh my God, hang on, wait, the, the, hang on, what happened? No, no, he didn't. But bloody hell, I remember watching that and going, go on, Chilton, come oh, on. Well, we'll, get we'll get to that. We'll get to that. Before all that, though, there's a, there's a lot of, uh, there's a big CV and a, a lot of career history. Um, but where did it all start? That's the first question we always ask everybody. You know, uh, sometimes it's in the family. And for you, obviously, we've had your older brother, Tom, on, who is uh, obviously in the British Touring Car Championship. So clearly, there's racing in the blood. Yeah, absolutely. Um, where did it all start? I think it really, really started when I was about three or four years old. I wanted to be a farmer because I thought, wow, tractors are wicked. Look at what, what they can do. So I obviously had that sort of want to drive. 
Um, and then I sort of got about, I don't know, a couple of years older and I, I sort of walked around the golf course with my dad and there was a greenskeeper with this amazing sort of mower that had things that like folded out and started making pretty shapes. I thought, oh, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to be a greenskeeper. And then it sort of, it, then I started sort of listening to Murray Walker going, uh, the lights are out, go, go, go. And it sort of just, that's, I don't know, I must have been about six. And that's when the bug started. Um, my brother, who's six years older than me, got into racing when he was uh, 13, 14. So I was about eight at the time, but I wasn't really old enough to, I think maybe I was seven. So I wasn't old enough to start cadet karting. Um, so there was about a year of me running around the paddocks on my scooter, just sort of watching my brother. And then as soon as I was sort of old enough, I got into cadet karting. Um, and as I tell everyone, 99% of people get into karting have a goal of trying to get to Formula One. Mm. Um, and it very quickly, people sort of don't make it or they go, you know, what, I'm going to do sports cars, I'm going to do touring cars. Um, but I just kept on that path. Um, I was luckily built for single seaters. I'm fairly tall and skinny. My brother's more like a rugby player. So he went down the touring car route and I went down the single seater route. So yeah, the, the rest is history, so I would say. But we did get to the top. Um, so I was very fortunate to, to race some Formula One. Um, but since then, I've done lots of other things and enjoyed life. Now, you, you um, well, I'm going to fast forward through your very early career. You, you obviously went through karting into cars and Formula 3, GP2 Asia, and then full GP2. Um, so I'm going to skip through some of those junior categories. I want to jump into 2011 when you took part in a young driver test at Abu Dhabi with a, a, uh, the, the then Force India team. Presumably, that was your first experience in an F1 car. What, what was that moment like where you sat yourself down and put your foot down on the gas and, and went for it? Yeah, it's, um, I'll never, ever forget that moment. The weirdest thing was because I was already racing GP2 cars, which are, you know, very, very fast, you know, as fast as you can get single-seaters without being in Formula 1. Um, and the first time I actually drove the 40 India was in a straight-line test at Kemble, which is now Cotswold Airport and, um, or Airfield. And they just wanted me to do straight line testing. And I'll never forget the first time I put that throttle down and I was a racing driver. I thought, oh my God, how on earth am I ever going to drive this round a track? And let alone one day ever racing at Monaco, because I was like, Abu Dhabi is at least fairly open, but Monaco, how on earth can you drive something that quick around Monaco? Um, and then fast forward to six months at the end of the year, I was doing the young driver test at Abu Dhabi. Um, and I think the most real moment for me there was... Um, obviously the full sender actually that year was pretty fast had a really good blown diffuser but Schumacher was in the Mercedes so I remember him passing me and I remember thought wow I'm actually on track with Michael Schumacher because he was sort of my inspiration when I was a kid growing up I'd love to say it was Senna but he was before my time Schumacher was the car in this you know the guy in that red car that kept winning when you're a kid all you want to do is win so that was a real sort of wow I'm actually I've gone from sat on the sofa at like seven years old watching Schumacher to now on track doing 200 miles an hour in the, in the same sort of car. So that was an amazing moment. Um, and then, yeah, it went on from there and ended up racing in Formula 1. So, yeah, very, very lucky. I've got a bit of a, I don't know if it's a stupid question, but um, a, a straight line test, is that literally what it says? You just literally get in, you drive straight, and then maybe what, do a UE, come back, go again. Is that how it works? Exactly, yeah. No more to add. That's exactly what it is. <laughs> I, was just always, I just thought there's got to be something to that, but well, yeah. good to know. <laughs> basically, lots of different variations of cruise control. So they'll set the limit right. at 50 miles an hour, and then you'll press a button, and you, you keep your foot flat the whole time. You'll press another button, it'll go to 180 miles an hour. And it, you, you're trying to do a certain distance at a certain speed, for consistency so they can get an exact sort of right 200 miles an hour we've got three tons of downforce and, and just see how things are working but it, yeah it's 
it's very, very basic. <laughs> Maybe we could do it. Um, but this is when things started to heat up, of course. So you have your, your, your test in, in Formula One. And then, of course, 2012 and, and 2013, uh, things start moving quite quickly. You go from test and reserve driver to, to a full-time F1 seat then in 2013 with uh, Marussia. Um, when that came about, I mean, that must have been obviously a huge ox ticked, but but more than that as you say you know you've already had Schumacher passing you and testing you know and you're actually lining up on the grid what was that feeling like when you were officially a Formula One driver? Yeah so it all started the year before in 2012 when I was racing for Carl and we were we had the Marussia uh, branding on my on my car and I had a very good year that year I finished uh, fourth in the championship I had pole positions uh, feature race wins which were the, the main uh, you know sort of races um, back in the day and uh, the timing was perfect because I actually got announced in Singapore that I was going to be the race driver for the following year. Um, and there was a surprise because I think that was announced on the Thursday. Then I put it on pole on the Friday and won the race. And so I, the timing for me couldn't have gone any better because there was all critics out there. Should he got there? Boom. Well, I put it on pole, won the race. So it sort of you know, you know, stuck two fingers up to those guys. And I, <laughs> the rest is history. Turned up in um, Melbourne the following year uh, at the age of 21. Uh, racing my first year in Formula One. And what, what was it like driving for Marussia at that time? Because the team never really had a car that was realistically going to be fighting for many points. Uh, it was a reliable car and you obviously held that amazing record of 25 straight finishes. But what was the sort of vibe within the team when um, you know, you're sort of fighting as hard as you can but not getting the results you want because of the machinery? Um, you just have to be the professional. You know that there's probably only two, maybe three cars that have got a chance of winning the championship. Everyone else is in the same boat. It doesn't matter if you're in the fourth best car or the tenth best car. All you've got to try and do is is prove yourself, be consistent as fast as you can, ideally beat your teammate as much as, much as possible. Um, so, yeah, I enjoyed it. And the, the thing for me is when we started in 2013, it was all a bit unknown who my teammate was going to be. And the rumour was it was actually going to be Jack Villeneuve. So I was actually rubbing my hands wow. because I thought you know what, he's, he's quite a bit older than me. He's, he's, it's, quite, it's a long time out of racing to then come back, but he's also a world champion. So it'd be perfect for me to sort of like beat a world champion if he was to be in the car. But that sort of didn't happen. Then it might have been, I think, uh, Ratsia was maybe going to do it. And then out of nowhere, Jules just turned up one afternoon in Barcelona, got in the car and, and went bloody fast. So I was like, right, I've now got some work cut out. And, you know, it was the best thing for me because that's one thing I've always done. I've, I did very well in British F3, finished fourth in the championship. I was teammates with Dan Ricciardo, shared the same number of pole positions. And I was as quick as him. I never got it quite right right in the races um, in Formula 3. And then GP2, I was I was quick as well. Um, but my logic was I could have stayed on to do another year in F3 and F2 and potentially won the championship. Not saying I was going to, but I probably had a good chance. But I was always up for racing against the best and stepping up. So I stepped up and always liked racing against the best. So having... Someone like Jules, who was definitely destined for Ferrari that following year, sadly, after he passed away, it was great to, to be learning from the best. I knew those days that I out-qualified Jules that I deserved it, that, that I couldn't have done anymore. Because if you can out-qualify Jules, you, you've done something right. Yeah. Um, and Tim, you were there. Tim, Tim actually was my PR manager for two or three years. So he sort of, he knew what was going on behind the scenes, how much yeah. work was. But uh, my second year, 2014, was actually probably my best, better year. Um, because I had a very good fitness camp over the 2013 winter. Um, and actually pre-season testing, I was putting a lot of pressure on Jules and, and beating him in the first few races, I think. Um, but then it all started to sort of fall apart. The team, I knew I knew what was going on behind the scenes, that the team was really, really struggling. Um, 
but a lot of people in the team didn't. So that was really hard for me. I, I was basically treating from Australia in 2014. Every race is my last race. Mm. Um, but we actually got all the way to sort of after Spa, it sort of fell apart at Spa, but we did get all the way to sort of nearly the end of the season before it actually did fall apart. Are you are you able to talk about that period in any detail? Because I, I remember it as well. And obviously, you know, being involved with you at that time, we we were, well, I was privy and some of the other guys that were working with you were privy to some of the, the bits and pieces that were going on. And it, was, it wasn't exactly what was being portrayed in the public. And there were, you know, bits of back and forth and you know, people saying, making accusations about all sorts of different things. Are you able to talk about it now? Are you allowed to talk about it? Do you, do you want to talk about it? Um, I, I talk about whatever. My biggest problem, and my wife always says, your memory's horrendous. So, <laughs> like, I, I, remember. I, I watch Formula One now. We both look at each other. But I literally can't remember racing in Formula One to the point it, it was eight years ago now. Yeah. And it generally wow. feels like a different life ago. Yeah. I know I'm up to so much different stuff now. And it's just... It feels so so long ago. So yeah, we, we can talk about it. I don't know how much of it I can remember, but it's... <laughs> I'm the same, Max. I can barely remember like two years ago, let alone what, what I did at university or anything like that. I haven't actually been back into the paddock since I left Formula One. That's the thing. No which way. Is, is there is there a reason for that? Do you have, do you do you want to be back there, or were there any chances to go back when you were, when you just finished with Marussia, or what, what's the sort of story uh, there? There was, opening, there was an opening potentially at Caterham for the last race of the year. So I actually flew out to race for Caterham. And that, again, all fell through literally on the sort of flight out there. But I knew realistically it probably wasn't going to happen again in Formula 1 after that. So that's why I very quickly set my sights on. I've always wanted to race at Le Mans. So that following year in 2015, I, I raced at Le Mans, but also was helping Carlin develop their Indy Lights team. Mm. Um, but once you start Indy Lights, which is obviously the, in Road to Indy, IndyCar's sort of mm. what you're destined for. Um, and yeah, that's what I ended up doing. But IndyCar's amazing racing. It's just as competitive as Formula 1 to the point that everyone's got the same machinery. So weirdly more competitive. I'm not saying the drivers are as, you know, top top grade, graded as the sort of Formula 1 grid, but in terms of spectators watching it, it's a lot tighter racing because everyone's got the same machinery. So I, I really like what, uh, like what I saw. I wasn't a big fan of the ovals, but having Dario Franchitti as my mentor... He said, Max, I did, it took me three or four years to get my head around them. I still didn't really got, get my head around them. It was more the money that sort of got him into it. <laughs> Back in the day, the prize money was, was pretty decent. So I knew I had to just keep going with it. And I ended up getting a win in Indy Lights. It was actually my only win in Indy Lights was on the Noble. And it was actually the day that Jules passed away, which was mm. very bizarre. Um, and then, yeah, went on to Chip Ganassi. My first over race in, uh, with Ganassi in 2016, I finished eighth which, uh, yeah, was was pretty decent. And then the following year, I led the Indy 500 for oh, 50 laps. That, that race was insane. Because I, I, I worked with Max for two or three years, like you said. And I think I stopped working with you about two or three weeks before the Indy 500. And so I turn on the TV, see Max basically smashing it in the Indy 500. I'm like, freaking typical. That Like, stop working with him and he's going to win the bloody biggest race on the planet, the bastard. But it, it, was, it, was, it was amazing to watch. Call. You had your fingers crossed that I wasn't going to win. Uh, yeah. Like, yes, he's gone into fourth. Yeah, he's outside the podium places. Now, I was, I was fully invested in it. I was like, go on, son. Because uh, knowing somebody in that race, you know, knowing someone personally in that race and watching them lead, such an enormous thing. And it was a brilliant race that year. It was so exciting. How was it for you when you're sitting there at the front of that pack leading for a long long time did you think holy shit like th this is it i'm gonna win the indy 500 um i don't know if i ever did think that i remember thinking wow this is pretty special the weirdest thing for me is 
that race is all, you know, they call it the month of May. It's big build up, especially race day. I mean, it, you know, Cannon goes off at 6 a.m. You wake up on your bus thinking, wow, there's already 300,000 people already sort of working their way into the stadium. You get called out um, row by row and it's just every seat in the place is just forwards. You know, that, that year was massive. I think it was 300 something thousand uh, spectators there that day. Um, and the other thing, it was the first year Fernando was, as Fernando Alonso was doing it. So there was a lot of people that had never watched the Indy 500 from the Formula One community watching it. Um, so that was, it was a great year for me to do so well. Um, but it's just a crazy, crazy race. I, you know, I had an awful start felt pretty much, I think I was dead last. I didn't have enough downfalls on the car. So in traffic, I was just horrendous. Sequencing, team did an amazing job with strategy, ended up getting me into clean air. We sort of went off strategy and I led because everyone pitted, I stayed out. But then I was so low on downfalls that I was so quick, no one could get past me when I had that clean air because when you're in clean air, you've got downfalls. So I led, I think maybe 10 or 15 laps then, then we had to pit and we dropped back down again. But then the sequence again happened towards the end of the race and I sort of led for 50 laps um, we weren't going to make it on fuel I knew we were two laps short but then there was a yellow with like 20 laps to go yeah. and uh, the team then suddenly said right that yellow's given us enough fuel you're good to go so I just you know kept my foot down and I led it for a number of laps after the restart but when you've got Elio Castroneves at the time was a three-time winner des- definitely wanting to win it and Takuma Sato that uh, narrowly missed out on the 2012 uh, victory I think it was the 2013 with, uh, with Dario I had two people that definitely wanted it um, but it was very quiet and peaceful like I was just in the zone I've never been in a racing car it was that quiet I literally had clean track I could see the grandstands were completely full but I was just in my zone um, but yeah but the moment Elio got past me at turn three it oh. was uh, yeah I knew I was fighting and I had like five laps to hold on with no downfall. So I sort of kept losing a, a position every sort of lap and a half. But yeah, I was, I was glad that checkered flag came out. Um, Amazing. And yeah, a very, very memorable day. Um, but, you know, I wouldn't change it for the world. And the best thing that came about after that race was Roger Penske, which now owns IndyCar and IMS, the, the Speedway. He didn't have a great year that year, uh, the, the team, but he came down straight, literally as I got out of the car and just shook my hand and went, wow, that was a, you did an amazing job. And I hadn't really spoken to him at that point, but I just, I've always had a lot of respect from him after, you know, since then, because they hadn't had a good day, but he just came down to me and said, you did amazing out there. So yeah, it was a, it was an amazing day. And uh, yeah, there's a good photo of me and Chloe after that race. She was sort of staring me in the eyes, sort of tearing up because she knew how well I'd done, but you know, it oh, was what it was. I wasn't meant to win. They, that track, they always say picks the winner and uh, I did the best job I could. It was amazing though. And it's, it's, when you look back at those times, you know, you've gone from Formula One, you've hit, you, you, one of the few lucky people to drive in Formula One and then narrowly miss out on the Indy 500, but still get a fourth place. I mean, that's in the history books. It's amazing. Do you ever sit back and go, oh my God, look, look what I've achieved? Because that, it's sort of spine tingling. It makes you go a bit funny. Like it's, it's an inc- incredible achievement. Yeah, it, it is. Um, I, you know, I've done that race, I think, six times since. Maybe we didn't qualify one of the times. So maybe I've raced it five times. And I half the time you're not doing that well. You're sort of mid-pack. And you look at, you can see this big pile on with the names at the top. And you think, God, it must be so hard to get up there. But I have been up there. I know what it's like. It's a lot of the time, everyone's, you know, everyone's going around within one or two miles an hour of each other. They're all pretty decent. It's all about that little last bit and luck. that You know, you need a bit of luck. Um and so, yeah, it wasn't to be, but 
I know what it's like and uh, I'll never forget it. It's definitely one to show the, the family one day. One more thing. Oh, oh, sorry, Harry. I just wanted to ask one more question on IndyCar um, in terms of the, the actual racing. What, what's, it, what's it like when you're on an oval and you're doing 220, 230 mile, mile an hour and you're, mi- <laughs> and you're mid-pack... What does that feel like? What does that do to the car? Like, is 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 it a? Do you get pulled along? Like, how, what's it? What's it feel like? Um. So, you do this. They call it the month of May. So, in testing, there's no one in the grandstands really. So, the track looks a lot wider. I don't know why it does. It's you know, you're, you're on your own most of the time, trying to get ready for qualifying. So, you had to qualify for the race. Some years you have to do some other, some you don't. Um, but on race day the grandstands are full on either side and the, the start straight suddenly reduces in um, size. It doesn't, but it feels like you're going down a funnel. It's just getting tight and tight. Um, and the, the, the in, obviously on race day, you're on nose to tail, like you're saying. And that, at 230, 240 miles an hour, just one car is pushing a huge amount of air out of the way. So if you put 15 cars in front of you doing 240 miles an hour, it's basically just a vacuum. There's no air there. So you're just super fast. You're sucking up behind them. And you're, unless you're trying to overtake, you go to like half throttle, three quarters throttle, just sitting there when they're full throttle. Because it's just, it's like a peloton in a cycling race. But the hardest thing is not just keeping your foot in and overtaking. That's not how it works. It's all about timing your move. Because the problem is, as soon as you get to the corner, being behind someone else, all that big air that they're pushing away for you, you've now got no downforce. So it's all about timing your move, um, which takes years of practice um some people get it quicker than others um and some years your car just really doesn't like 30 years some can sit like one and a half back one and a half or two cars back through the corners so as soon as they come out onto a straight they get enough run and get past but if your car's only happy sitting five cars back by the time you've got the toe and got to the end of straight there's still a car behind and then you just can't overtake and that's you can spend three hours at the indy 500 mm. just not getting past a single car because you just you can't get close enough through the corners so yeah. it's all all to do with timing and I suppose people, I think, underestimate as well the achievement of what you were doing as well with the, with the team, with Carlin, you know, coming up through the, through the ranks of junior British motorsport, but then going over the pond with them and, you know, they were a one-car team. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about you insane hollywood ass so to recap we're cutting the price of mint unlimited from 30 dollars a month to just 15 dollars a month give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch 45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees promote for new customers for limited time unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows full terms at mintmobile.com hey there it's michelle norris i'm host of a podcast called your mama's kitchen when i travel i'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when i'm not at home and one of the things i love to do when i am at home is entertain and airbnb allows me to do that when i was in california recently i rented a house that had a great kitchen and when we were sitting around the table we're all thinking we're in someone else's house someone could be in all of our homes as well if you have a home but you're not always at home you have an airbnb your home might be worth more than you think find out how much at airbnb.com slash host really with you and that and that's really tough in, in a competitive environment like that right yeah no carlin carlin is a, an amazing team i've been part of them since 2009 when i raced them british f3 i always looked up to them even before i was with them they were 
you know, they were so good. I always thought they were cheating in F3. They were just, <laughs> they were so good. And then I joined and I realised they weren't cheating. They're just, they've got the best people with the best sort of machinery and just work fantastically. So I've, you know, I've worked with them for many years. My family sort of uh, a big part of that team. And it's uh, knowing Trevor and Steph, how hard they work on it. When they said that they wanted to go to the States in 2015, I said to Trevor, yeah, I'll come and help. It wasn't the plan to do the full season. I thought it was just going to do the sort of odd race. But I ended up pretty much doing the whole championship, excluding a couple of races because I had to do Le Mans. Um, and yeah, they've gone on to do do amazing things. The biggest problem in America is it's so competitive when you get up to IndyCar. You're up against Andretti, which had been doing it for nearly 30 years, I think. Penske had been doing it for like 50 years. Mm. Um Chiganasty like 30 years and they've got such a huge organisation with so many years of experience and so many sponsors that create so much money to develop the cars mm. when I was a one or two car team at Carlin we had enough to run cars we didn't really spend anything on development and so it's very difficult to make your car a little bit better than the others around you if you're not spending money on developing the damper work and all of that all of that stuff we were doing little bits but nowhere near to the level of these these big uh, organisations when you look back at like IndyCar, Le Mans, Formula One, is there anything you you would change, do differently now? Um, it's so difficult that. <laughs> all I know is if I was if I was to do all again, say I was to have a son and I wanted to get into racing, I would yeah. know more now of what path and how to go about it. Um, would you encourage Formula One if they were like, I want to be a Formula One driver? Would you encourage that? Or knowing what you know, would you try and steer them somewhere else? Because it's far cheaper and I'd rather spend, the, uh, <laughs> I'd rather spend three or four days at Valderrama than uh, a wet car track. So uh, yeah. Yeah, that's my logic anyway. But, you know, you, you definitely learn all, along the way. So if I was to ever manage a, you know, a driver, I'd sort of know that sticking with a team, someone like Landon Norris came to us at Carlin. And yeah, he did do more days than anyone else I've ever known testing. But you need that time is time is practice, and he would do more hours on a simulator than anyone else did. But it's paid off now because he was with Carlin. He won in every category all the way up to to F two, and then got into Formula One. And you can see how how well trained he is. Um, and there's very few people that have such a clear route like Lando did. But there's there are people I'm following now in karting that have the potential of doing what Lando's done by having a good team around them. Obviously, you need the backing, but mm. It's, it's also the the right path. And I think mm. sticking with one team so it becomes like a family and going with them, if you can, all the way through the ranks at the top um, is, is the right way about Right way about it. Yeah, absolutely. And Carlin are a great place to, to learn your trade. We've had Trevor on the show actually, and he was fascinating. Um, now let's change tack slightly. Let's look towards the future. Um, tell us about McMurtry Automotive, BHP Stable. You're expanding your your portfolio of bits and pieces. Tell us about those two uh, bits that you're working on. Yeah, so I've always had a bit of a uh, you know business mind. I've always wanted to achieve other things apart from racing. I get I get that from my my parents. My dad's very entrepreneurial, and I sort of just learn. I've always I call myself a wig dealer. I always want to see if there's a way to you know make money, and it sort of drives me. I mean, you've got to do something to get you out of bed in the morning. Yeah. Um, and so I haven't given up racing. I've definitely not hung up my boots. I want to do Le Mans eventually. Um, but this, I knew last year that IndyCar was going to come to an end, and it was at the Festival of Speed last year that um, the PR manager, Dave from uh, McMurtry, said, oh, do you want to come down here and just have a look at our car? And it was like, you know, like everyone calls it a mini Batmobile. And they said, oh, it's fan powered. That's how it gets its downforce. It's electric. And I thought, well, that's, you know, it's cool. Um, maybe I should give it a go. So I was like, let me know if you ever want to 
you know, need a driver. So they said, oh, yeah, come and drive it. So I went down to Castle Coombe at the end of last year. And we didn't have the fan system working, so it had hardly any downforce because it's designed, the body is designed to basically have no downforce. The downforce comes from this fan that sucks it down on a skirt. But I knew the power was, like, outrageous. As I said, from straight line testing in the Force India, where I thought, wow, this was another level. I was like, my God, if you could get downforce on this thing, this is ridiculous. Um, so, yeah, I sort of, you know, pulled you know, pulled a few strings and got to know them well and ended up being taken on as their sort of test drive. And we've done a lot of testing this year. Um, and the thing excites me a lot because we've done a lot of testing at Silverstone and I think we're going to get pretty close to my Marussia time that I did in qualifying wow. around there. I think we'll get pretty close by the end of the year with a few little changes. Uh, the thing creates two tons of downforce at standstill with the, when you turn the fan on. So then when you do launches, Jesus. by having a Range Rover sat on the roof, just the weight of it, it, it right. can't create traction because there's so much weight on it. But then it's got a thousand horsepower per tonne and it's electric, so there's no gear changes. And so there's no drops in your acceleration. And because it's electric, it's 100% torque. So the, your acceleration curve is just yeah. linear. And it just keeps going. It doesn't like go 0 to 60 fairly quick and then sort of slow off. It just goes 0 to 150 like a, a scale electric car. A quick interruption to the show to remind you to check out our sponsor, F1 Experiences. F1 Experiences offer a wide range of packages that come direct from Formula One, giving you a unique experience of the pinnacle of motorsports. Official ticket packages come with the very best race tickets, first-class hotels and transfers, and unprecedented access, including track tours, pit lane walks, VIP hospitality, and loads more. It really is the closest you can get to Formula One. And Motormouth listeners can save 5% on your next F1 Experiences package by using the code M. M11F1E when booking online at f1experiences.com. So, so what, what's what's their what's their business model then? Is this to is this to sell cars to start a championship or is it like a private track day thing? It's sort of developed on, on the way. So, so David Murtry, who's uh, an 82 year old, uh, very successful businessman. Um, he's Irish. He's always had a passion to make a small road car. Now, best way of making a small road car is make a very. He wanted not just a sort of like Renault Twizy, he wanted something to be fast. So you make a race car and then detune it for the road. So he's had a team of people on this for over five years now. And they're mainly F1 engineers. So they're very smart, straight out from uni, some of them. And they're just, the way they think is so backwards, but amazing. And uh, yeah, this is their first year where we've been putting all the system working, how they originally designed. And uh, it was going to be make a track car, but now we're going to sort of make it a road track car. You can just do both. Um, and if you drive it at like road car speeds, it can do like 300 miles, but you put it on full fan and full power. It does like two or three laps around Silverstone, but that's at like LMP1 speeds. I yeah. mean, there's nothing you can go out and buy for the road. I think mm. the road car lap record got beaten by Johnny Cocker yesterday in a GT2 RS with a bit of tuning and it did like a two minute six. I mean, we're down sub 140 or you know, 140 and that's going to be a road car. So when you're smashing it out of the park by like 25 seconds. Um, but yeah, that's exciting. Um, I started BHP Stable, which is a car storage business, um, a couple of years ago because I sort of, I just love cars. I've always had a passion for supercars, classic cars. Um, and I just saw a bit of an opening in my local area. A lot of other people seem to have started them as well. But it's, you know, we're full. It's only small. Um, it's just me that sort of runs it day to day. Um, and it takes up a bit of my time and stuff. But the best thing that's come about from it is the people at uh, clients are similar-minded and they're sort of, I've got on 
get to know a couple of them really well. And one of them, I've just gone into business. So we started a property development company, which is something Tim's probably always known that I like is, is property. So I've actually started uh, a property development company. One of my clients has gone 50-50 and we've literally um, completed yesterday on a site in Cobham to build three houses. Wow. So got that, BHP, development, Mercury car, um, and uh, yeah, it's there's lots on. I'm also building a house, um, but yeah, I just I I don't like saying no to things. I like trying to learn as much as I can, and some things won't work, but hopefully some of them will. And you know, it's that's the way you learn in life. Fantastic. I mean, so I mean, there's so many strings to your bow, and also you popped up the other day uh, on the Indy 500 broadcast mm. in Vision in their full uh, full uh, show with uh, Tom Gaymore. Um, and now, in terms of, oh, I want to come on Formula One, but IndyCar in the UK, how it seems like it's growing quite rapidly at the moment, especially with with Sky showing it and, and doing a little bit more of a sort of package around it. Um, but do you, do you still find it's mainly like an American thing, or that's not really ever going to crack crack the UK? It's amazing. You want to, usually you want to crack America, but it seems like IndyCar needs to crack the UK. Not that yes. it needs to. I mean, since 2017, when I said Fernando came across and he did, he came very close to winning it that, mm. that year. I think he probably was if his engine had blown up. Um, he, uh, he definitely got a new audience. But the thing that's changed motorsport the most, and again, I, as I said earlier, I'm like an old man. I was, I was late to podcasts. I was very late to Netflix. I only got that in lockdown. But Netflix has genuinely changed motorsport. It's the way it's got this huge new audience into Formula One means people now are watching motorsport. But when you start watching motorsport, Formula One, you then think, oh, what, what's rallying or what, what's mm. in the car? And it sort of works its way down. And so the audience in motorsport, I think, is just growing. Um, the thing that is doing really well for IndyCar is it's been on Sky Sports F1 channel in the UK for the last three or four years. So it's naturally people just forget to change the channel it's on. And it, the timings work really well for IndyCar. is because it's in America, they're the behind. It's usually a Sunday evening after Grand Prix, you've left the channel on and then the IndyCar race comes on and sort of a lot of people just sort of blend into the two. Um, and then they actually find the IndyCar racing half the time more exciting because it's closer, the tracks are a bit tighter. There's, you know, it's old school. It's a white line, grass, gravel, and then a barrier. With mm. these Tilka circuits, you sort of cut the corner and then it's like three days of debating online. Why well, he cut the corner? He didn't give his position back. We don't have that in IndyCar. You, your penalty is served as soon as you leave the track. Yeah, yeah, I, I'm, a, I'm a big fan of IndyCar. I, I watch it quite a lot now and um, thoroughly enjoy it. I um, still enjoy F1, but uh, let's talk about F1. What, what's your take on the current state of Formula One? Do you like it? Um, definitely better in the last couple of years, without a shadow of doubt. There was a bit of a lull, and it, we sort of always knew who was going to win. Now, we had some still amazing races, but we sort of always knew who was going to win, which team. Um, now it's definitely more unpredictable um there's more young drivers have come in there's been a definite flourish of young drivers in the last five years because there was quite a stagnant period of everyone sort of keeping their seats yeah now it's definitely yeah. well you say uh, you came in at 21 and that's mighty young but these days that's old yeah. over the hill absolutely i know it's unbelievable when some of these younger drivers came in at like 18 19 i think for staff i can't remember how old he was when he won a race 19 or 20 i, think, I, don't it was, know. I think it was 18 yeah, I mean, it was just ridiculous how young he was when he'd actually won a race. I was thinking, wow, that's, you know, it's quite incredible. So, um, yeah, I, I'm a big fan of it. Um, I still think you can see, I wish sort of professional karting got broadcast because I still don't think the grassroots of racing, which is karting, gets enough Agree. You know, sort of fame because the racing in that is the purest racing you'll ever get. 
There's no downforce. It's bumper to bumper. It's timing your moves. As soon as you get something which every time a car gets quicker and quicker, more downforce, the racing gets worse and worse. Um, but F1 did do, I think the best thing they've done in recent years is obviously doing this ground effects um, sort of downforce because they naturally this year are running closer and the racing's more interesting. So, yeah, I think they're, they're making changes and they're, they're trying to do their best to make it better. I just wish they didn't go to certain tracks, which is clearly money-related, instead of going mm, yeah, to some of classic tracks, which have got some amazing ones around the world. Yeah, absolutely. Who's your, uh, who's your bet for the championship this year, then? Oh, well, I was going to say Leclerc, but that's, you know, Ferrari seems to sort of let it go from time to time. I think, I do think Max has probably got it now, to be honest, unless Perez has this sort of, Mighty, mighty comeback! But I put, I'm putting a quid on Perez, you know, because you just think like maybe you're not really, yeah, you're not sure about it. <laughs> well, yeah, I don't want to lose too much money, but yeah, <laughs> but yeah, a few retirements here or there. Perez, he's up there this year, yeah. You? But it's it's interesting though. Just uh, we've spoken to a few other um, former Formula One drivers who, when they leave the sport, you know, they they kind of fall out of love with it fairly understandably, and they don't want anything to do with it for a while. Did you feel the same way? Um, I don't think I felt in love with it. What happened is I was very busy doing other things. I spent seven years traveling to in America uh, every couple of weeks. I did like 160 trips across the Atlantic and I was just so busy training and working on learning the IndyCar scene that I didn't have any time to go back. I still have yet to go back into the F1 paddock since I, since I left Formula 1. I'm actually going to the British Grand Prix, I think, in fortnight's time and uh, have applied for the BRDC... Uh, pit lane walkabout just to sort of get back in the pit lane because I actually haven't been back since I left which would be exciting but um, oh, come, know, and do, come and do the F3 commentary with me more than welcome <laughs> you'll put me shame you're a professional I'll just I'll just sort of go quiet and then, uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no more than welcome um, but uh, what well in that case you say you know you haven't hung up your racing boots um, what what is the the future what does the future hold you mentioned Le Mans is, is that the only thing you'd want to go back and do um Ooh. No, I, d- I don't. I love this thing. I love the passion of, of driving fast. I, it, it, this is why I feel so lucky doing this McMurtry thing because I was playing golf recently um, this week at the BRDC Golf Day. And some of the drivers saying, "What's it like not racing?" And I said, "If I just stopped racing and driving anything, it would have been really difficult." But because I'm out once a week or once a fortnight in this McMurtry, which is faster than in, faster than IndyCar, um, and at times in certain areas, it's faster than the Formula One car. And it's on tracks that I love, like Stilson. I'm getting, I'm getting my kick from that. Mm-hmm. And I've always wanted to develop a race car and motor car. I think it's part of a sort of professional driver. It's showing the skills of how you do that. And that's something I've always wanted to do. So I'm really enjoying working with them. I'm getting the satisfaction of trying to break some records and, and drive fast. But as I said, I've got other things that I want to achieve in life. So it's given me time to sort of start a company like Property, which I've always wanted to do. And in the car storage. So, yeah, I'd love to go back to Le Mans. That's one thing I sort of only did once. Everyone always said it was perfect for me because I'm smooth and consistent mm. and bring a car home. Um, but I only did it once in a car, which was awful. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. Yeah, let's talk about that one. So, um, yeah, I want to I go back there one day. Um, now, we're, we're nearly at our final three questions, which we ask all of our guests. Before we get there, I want to share... There, there were three m- memories that I have of you... Um, from our, our time together, working together. It's funny. The, f- the first one was when we met at Crown Talent and Media Group in the offices there. And they, they say, come in, Tim, come and have a chat with Max. He's this kid. He, 
basically they were like, he thinks he's going to go and race an F1. I was like, oh, here we go. Yeah, whatever. And there was this sort of shy guy sitting there chatting about going into Formula One. Little did we know what was what was to come. Um, but my second memory of you was in Monaco when I was um, lucky enough to come with you to the Monaco Grand Prix and watch you racing around the principality. And I watched most of the race with your mum in front of the TV and watching her watch you was it was one of the most moving things I've ever seen. She she had her head in her hands for the entire race, just on tenterhooks. It must be an awful feeling for her to to watch you race. And yeah. it's, I've got this sort of vision of her stuck in my brain. And the third one was at Silverstone, and you were you were driving behind. I've got I've, I want to say it was Kimi Raikkonen, and his tire came off, and it bounced oh, back wow. towards your car, and it I think it may have even hit the top of your helmet. But I saw it live. I saw it happen right in front of my face. And this tyre, had it been half a foot lower, would have caught you flush in the visor. Do you remember that? Yep. Yeah, you don't forget that. Terrifying. I mean... Was that that year when you went went to Monaco? Was that in my first year in F1 or 2012, the year before? I think it. I think it was. Uh, no, it was F one. It was F one. Yeah, because the year before she was probably even worse. Because my mum is my biggest fan. She absolutely lives and breathes motorsport. She's obviously got me and my brother. So she, uh, yeah, her way of watching is screaming and sort of, you know, she <laughs> she lives it more than I do. So um, yeah, no, I couldn't ask for a better mum than that thing. But in 2012, um, I actually got on the podium in F two uh, or GP two at the time. And so I can imagine she was screaming from the boat watching that year. Yeah. And then 2012, yeah, she was probably just nervous with her son watching, you know, oh. seeing the faster speed around Monaco. It felt so sad um, for her. And going back to that tyre thing, yeah, I was, I did, it sort of happened so quick. I sort of saw it, but didn't have a chance. I sort of like turned left, but I didn't really know what it was. And there was a mark just sort of kissed the helmet and the head. You know, I was, I was, I was half a foot away from not being yeah. uh, able to see any more days. So yeah, I was very lucky. Um, and uh, yeah, that was what was your third memory? That was the that was the second. What was your third? So, uh, no, the first the first one was meeting you for the first time. The first day oh, we met at Crown, and then and then the other two. Yeah, but it, it's funny. There's just certain things that stick in, stick in your head. And um, watching your mum watch you race was one of those moments. I just thought, I think I'm, I might have even taken a picture of her. I'll dig it out and send it over. I've got loads of photos of you from that time. That I should probably send you because um, yeah. you know I got also I've got all the memorabilia left over with signed pictures. We should do a giveaway. I should do a Max Chilton giveaway special. I've got all sorts. Of stuff. Um, You've got enough trophies behind you. Are they all yours? This is the no. These are from our karting event, which we're going to have to drag you along to. So uh, I didn't take part. I just stole the spares. In fact, uh, I think I spoke to the head of uh, McMurtry PR last night. Said I was going on this. He said, "Well, we've got to have a McMurtry team for the karting event." Oh, good the- stuff. Oh yes, absolutely. Fourth of August. Have you got a summer one? Huh? Have you got a summer karting event this year? Fourth of August. Or- yeah. Right, so that's the one we need to try and... August. That sounds like it's going to clash or something. But I missed the first one this year. Yeah. But I think we might want to have a team one in your... Uh, okay. Your well, we'll look at it. If, I mean, the, the date is pretty much set, although there's a lot of people on holiday, which I should have thought about. Um, so oh, there's a small chance it may change. But um, I'll see, but we'll talk about that offline for sure. Yeah. Now, um, we have a final three questions, August, which... August is clear, so we're all oh, good. Oh, good. Okay. I'm good. I'm Don't good. book any holiday. Don't book a holiday. <laughs> um so we've got a final three questions, which um, we ask all of our guests. They're brought to us by our friends and partners at F1 Experiences. Harry, do you want to kick off? Yes, Mr. Chilton, what has got you excited at the moment? Oh, what's got me excited at the moment? The, the prospect of going to the Festival of Speed next week and hopefully trying to win the hill climb. Uh, Are you there all, all every day? 
I'm actually, I've got my best friend's wedding on a Saturday. So I'm doing the Thursday single run, the double run on the Friday and the double run on the Sunday, but I'm not doing the Saturday. <laughs> Oh, well, I'm, I'm there on the Thursday, so I have oh, to come and no. seek you out. I think I'm there on yeah, the Friday. I'm, oh, I'm a guest. That's good. I'm there on the Friday. Yeah, I'm just oh. not there on the Saturday. Okay. Yeah. I'm a, I'm a guest of Ferrari, just saying. Check so. you. Check you. <laughs> no, I just don't go. Ask, don't get. I, I, uh, I blagged some media accreditations, so I think I'm going to go on Friday. I'll go, go and cheer it. Max up the hill. Um, yeah. Our second question for you. How much of your success do you put down to luck and right place, right time, and how much do you think is down to sheer hard work? Ooh, um, I think if you're mentally focused on something, you will achieve it. But you obviously, there are people just unlucky. So that it's probably 80%, 85% effort. And then you, you know, you need things, you need, you need contacts, you need things to go your way. Um, one lucky race can change your, change your life or your career, which means you can get into the next team. So yeah, it's probably 85% sort of effort and 15% luck and timing. Very good. Hurry up. Yeah. Final question, Max. What are you scared of? Oh, what am I scared of? Uh, spiders. I hate all spiders, snakes, all of that jazz. I'm not very animally. My mum's really allergic to animals, so I was sort of wasn't brought up with them. I've learned, my wife's always had cats, so I've learned cats and I've sort of learned dogs now. Um, so yeah, I've sort of, yeah, probably animals because I sort of feel like I'm, I can't understand what they're going to do. But then I know people will judge that because people go, oh, people don't like dogs. I don't like them. They're obviously dodgy cats. No, it's just I'm not, <laughs> I wasn't caught up with them. So I sort of don't know how they're going to react. Sort of feel like you should have a dog. You know, you're quite a country sort of guy. You yeah. know, you're, I feel like you need a sort of, I don't know, a black lab or will. something. This keeps coming up. And when we build it, we're finishing our house. We sort of, because we're going to be at home or we want to get a dog. But I like these little dogs to sit with you on the sofa, but then I also want a dog that can go out and run 10K with me and sort of go shooting with. So it's sort of like I need a hybrid which sort of shrinks when it comes indoors and gets bigger. You can get... Well, I've got a friend who's got... I don't, I, I've always said the dogs had dwarfism, but it's never it's never been proven. It's basically a black Labrador, but it's like... It's it's tightless. It's, it's a small black lab, so it does all the big stuff a black lab can does, yeah. but it will curl up with you on the sofa as well, like and it's like sort of in your lap kind of thing. I don't know how they found that one, but might be worth looking into. <laughs> oh brilliant well listen Max thanks so much for joining us Um, it's been a pleasure chatting to you again and hearing all about your career and your your thoughts and um, the Indy 500 obviously Um, all the best with your future endeavours whether that be on track at business Um, all our love to the family Max has a wonderful family um, a lovely wife Um, all the best to everybody and hopefully we'll see you at Goodwood Um, for now thanks for joining us on the Motormouth podcast thank you very much cheers chaps If you've been listening to this and thinking, actually, I really want to go and experience a race for myself in person, why not do it in style at a Formula One Grand Prix thanks to F1 Experiences, the official experience, hospitality and travel program of Formula One. F1 Experiences really is the closest you can get to the sport. Official ticket packages, which include the best race tickets, first class hotels, travel and exclusive behind the scenes access across a Grand Prix weekend. F1 Experiences offer packages like no other. So 
to book your F1 Experiences package, head online to f1experiences.com and if you enter code MM11F1E, you'll get 5% off too. Thank you so much for listening to the Motormouth podcast. Do make sure you give us a follow on our socials, Twitter at Motormouth underscore, Instagram at Motormouth underscore official and Facebook, just search Motormouth. You can also download the Motormouth app where you can get exclusive video content from MMTV, create your own social profile to interact with other fans and check up on all the latest happenings with whatever motorsport takes your fancy. We're also proud to be supporting the Brain Tumor Charity too, so make sure you check the links in the podcast description to find out how you can help cure brain tumors quicker. Don't forget to like, subscribe and review. And until next time, you've been listening to the Motormouth Podcast.